0: You are listening to Thulos, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Thulos offers a scriptural daily bread for God's household and explores servant leadership as an Orthodox Christian. I'm Holly Benton, your host and executive director for the Orthodox Christian Leadership Initiative. Joining me again today is co host Father Timothy Lowe, former rector at the Tontour Ecumenical Institute in Jerusalem. Hello, Father Timothy. Great to see you.
1: Good morning, Holly. Nice to be with you again.
0: Father Timothy, it seems we've been on a roll looking at stories throughout Scripture where the Lord calls someone to do His will. Last week, we heard the calling of the Apostle Peter. A couple of weeks ago was the calling of Isaiah. In both cases, when they recognize the voice of their Lord and Master, they also recognize their own unworthiness. In the case of Peter, he confessed, "'Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord.'" In the case of Isaiah, he exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. And in both cases, the Lord provides assurances, not assurances like, no, 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 you're okay. I'm okay. We're all good. No, when you are standing squarely in the Lord's presence, there's no doubt of your own sinfulness, but an assurance that only the Lord and master can provide to his servant, his slave, his lulos, the one called to carry out his will. For Peter, Jesus assured him, do not be afraid. For Isaiah, the hot coal touched his lips with a word that your guilt is taken away and your sins forgiven. And in both cases, the Lord made it clear that there was work to be done, a message to be delivered, his message to be delivered. In fact, for Isaiah, he was commissioned to carry a not-so-good message to Israel because time had run out for repentance and they were facing a certain destruction. For Peter, he was called to be a fisher of men. Peter certainly didn't understand what that meant at the time of his calling, but we have the privilege of knowing the rest of the story, including the many bumps in the road of Peter's own unfaithfulness to that calling. Father Timothy, as Christians, we talk a lot about our life's calling, our vocation, vocatio, coming from the Latin root for call. And we use the word for situations like being called to the priesthood, perhaps being called to serve in other ways too as a deacon or a teacher or a parish council member. I was talking yesterday to a couple of laymen involved in our organization who reflected on servant leadership, and one suggested... I just don't see my role in the church as a volunteer, as though I can just walk away from it if I no longer want to serve. It's a calling. I'm on the hook. And at another point in the conversation, another layman said, It's a temptation to approach your role on the parish council as one of entitlement, as though it's about asserting your own will. Truly, it's about serving the will of our one Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. So we have both sides of the coin here. The servant or slave of God, the dulos to theu, isn't a volunteer in the household of God. And at the same time, the dulos has no entitlement, no authority, but operates as one under the Lord's authority. So today we're going to be looking at the call of Moses. Our listeners will likely remember the story of the burning bush. So Father Timothy, help us understand the context of the story from Exodus 3.
1: Well, like I try to stress every time, is you do have to look at the context. And the larger context, of course, is the whole story that started in Genesis. So I can't automatically just tell our readers you need to reread Genesis and then chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. But in fact, if you don't know those, you will miss a lot of the nuances and the meaning to understand what is unique to this section. Moses is a the pinnacle figure. First five books, of course. He gets more texts than anybody else, including Jesus of Nazareth. So gets our attention, right? At the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob, the patriarch dies, his family, his children, all have been brought to Egypt to save them from starvation, but they're outside of the promised land, which is always bad news. So there's a little nuanced conflict there. Joseph, the exiled brother, who was the prince of the family, but again, you have to know that story, it ends also with his death. And then Exodus, it starts with a very strange setting because you come from a clan, a people, and then all of a sudden you have a new Pharaoh. So the old Pharaoh has died, the one that had negotiated, and whom Joseph, in his leadership, as rising to the ranks and being as if he was Pharaoh functionally, because Pharaoh had given him total authority, made him a wealthy man, saved the world through the provision through famines and whatnot, which again, saved his own family later on, you know, that story. Then the Exodus starts with this strange sentence. There arose a new Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. It's so odd that it catches your ear. So what does that mean? And that is the question. It means whatever happened in Genesis is no longer functional. The relationship that Joseph had as representative of his family with Pharaoh is all gone. And so we immediately we see that the new pharaoh is evil he enslaves the people but then they start to becoming not just a clan but a nation and pharaoh claims "Oh, they're more powerful than us and we say how is this possible a group of slaves living in the land no, but it's just hyperbole but it shows that they are beginning to thrive it's the blessing and the multiplication of being fruitful out of genesis so that's the intro to the next stage in the biblical story now matter i People understand that Exodus is a total reset, total reset, a new beginning. Because whatever happened, you see, Joseph was no longer remembered, which means all that happened is as if it doesn't exist. And these people are starting all over again. And if you read Genesis, and you'll see, even with the Moses story, there is a lot of resetting going on. Usually, when something bad happens, you have to start all over. Your computer is not working; you have to reset it, shut it down, start it up again, and hope that that fixes the problem. And that's just sort of the metaphor for the biblical story all that. So what I want people to remember is that Moses gets a birth story. He gets a a strange birth story because the decree was to kill all the Israelite babies, male babies, male babies. And the counterweight to that decree by Pharaoh to destroy them all is two midwives. They are secretly delivering the babies and trying to preserve them. And Moses is one of these babies. And it says strangely that as an infant, and everybody knows the story, he's put in a basket and sent in the Nile while his mother watches afar to see what's gonna happen. The unnamed daughter of Pharaoh comes down to bathe and whatnot, sees a Hebrew baby, recognizes it, and yet she saves the child. So this is a new beginning. This is Moses' birth. Now, what people may not realize is that the word basket is a bad translation because it is the same word as Noah and the ark. My point is because of the literary connection by words, Moses is saved in an ark, just as Noah was. And so you have to connect the stories. And that's why I said reset, new beginning. There's a new chapter, completely, totally new, happening with Moses and hence the story of him being saved. You don't want to say miraculously, but providentially, which means these are important. Now, the irony, of course, People need to understand that Moses and his counterpart, which is Joseph in Genesis, they're two dominant figures ultimately. Moses is raised as a prince in the house of Pharaoh. In other words, he's given everything. No suffering, no being sold into exile, brother, your brothers and rising up and in prison. No, he's given the cushy life by adoption. So he is a prince of Pharaoh. You need to understand his status. Yet... He is intrinsically aware of his connection to the Hebrew people. In fact, he is so bold to say, these are my people, my people. So understand where he's coming from. So when we do our chapter three, we're going to see how far he has fallen. Because that is the point, you know, you talked about Isaiah and Peter's So you, you, you think you're up here. Then at some point you fall and Moses falls dramatically. And how does he fall? He goes out and he wants to check out his brethren, you see, you know, the prince, you see, adopted into the house, raised in luxury, not the slavery and the brutality and the harshness of the labor. All is given. And he sees his people. And ultimately, we know the story that he slays an Egyptian who was acting harshly against his people and thinks he's done it in secret because he's trying to help his people from his glorious wealth of luxury and ease. And then he goes out again and sees two of them arguing and he says, why are you arguing? The two Hebrews say to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Who do you think you are? Who are you? See, this is the beginning of the irony. And then of course, he has committed murder. He is not a good guy. He is not a good guy. So he flees from Pharaoh who now seeks his life. And this is where in chapter three begins to take up Moses in exile, Moses alone, just a shepherd, and there he is in exile completely at a loss.
0: Let's start with the first part of this story. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here am I. Then he said, do not come near, put off your shoes from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So there you have it, Father Timothy, similar to Isaiah and Peter, when Moses understood he was in God's presence, he hid his face. He was afraid. I suppose this might be the first test of vocation. If I believe the Lord is calling me, but have no sense of fear or recognition of my own sins, I'm probably just deluding myself. So here, Moses doesn't recognize God immediately. Moses, in fact, seems a little bit thick. God has to warn him, don't come near, remove your shoes. This is holy ground. And then God has to introduce himself. I am the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So what's going on with this introduction?
1: I find this first section that you just read, actually rather humorous, funny, because Moses is alone, out with his sheep, he doesn't know exactly where he is. He sees this event that gets his attention, like anything else. You want to just check out what has happened because it's unusual. And then the encounter begins. And I like the point that you say that God has to introduce himself. Okay. This is the point. God has not been mentioned at all, specifically the God of the Israelites. And notice that God is not referenced to a place, a location, but to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which means the story connected with those people, which consumes all of Genesis. Okay. So it makes my point that you have to understand the earlier story to follow where it's taking us. This God is not a God of a place, not a temple. Okay. The wilderness is an area that is completely uninhabitable, except under certain times of year when the rain and the growth and people can move their sheep, and that's why they have to move around. Otherwise, it's non-functional. The location is completely in an uninhabitable place, not referenced, not important to anybody else, not subject to kings and rulers and governance and armies and whatnot. Okay, it's a wasteland. And this is the point where this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob begins to encounter our soon-to-be-enlisted, commissioned, sent one of Moses. Now, we have Moses, the murderer, the exiled one, encountering God. Let's see how it goes.
0: So here are the next few verses. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. So Father Timothy, I, I just love this line. Who am I that I should go? This line always makes me laugh, albeit kind of an uncomfortable laugh because we so-called leaders use this line all the time. I mean, maybe Moses is asking out of a place of humility or out of fear, how is he to take on Pharaoh, the oppressor? But this is the Lord talking, the one who has power and dominion. So the who am I shtick sounds more like an excuse, like... False humility, especially in light of the larger context, as the story continues with Moses questioning God at every turn, laying on more excuses about not being an eloquent speaker, and on and on. In this case, people are suffering and crying out. They're oppressed. And the focus is, Who am I?
1: Exactly, Holly. As you read earlier, God says, I will do this then you are merely the one sent to accomplish it. That I will be the one who ultimately succeed for any of us who imagine, I use the word imagine because the idea of all of us being called can be a slippery slope because it can be something that we imagine or something actually done. And at the end, it's about submission, submitting to the will of God as the real test. Is it my will or God's will that we are set to accomplish? And so, God, as we will see here, will not allow excuses when we are commissioned by him to do something. That is the critical point, because if it's left up to I, you know how quickly we will fall into despair. And that's why I like it that it is when Moses is at his lowest point. We saw this with Isaiah, woe is me. And so yes, it can be false humility on one hand. But it also can be inaccurate. And the point is, Moses, you are nothing. You are nothing. But that even shows that if you succeed, it has to do with the power of God. And so again, as you know, our egos are slippery slopes, sneaking in undisguised or mask of righteousness or holiness or humility false. But the test will always be is, do we despair? When we are being tested, do we give up? And the point is you've said, and we've said all the time in these contexts, it's of obedience. So get over the crisis of yourself. Just do what is asked. Okay. I mean, that's it. That's it. And continue. And the fact that you may not succeed or see the fruit of your labor. I'm already cheating because we know at the end, Moses will not get to the promised land as the final blessing from God. He will not see the fruit of his work. (laughs) He lives in hope. He's taken away. Because, again, it is about God, not about me, you, legacy, our work, church, outside of church, parish council. It's not ever about God. So Moses is learning some hard stories, and we have more to go. So I will stop
0: here and let you continue to read. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you this is my name forever and thus i am to be remembered throughout all generations with these verses it seems we're getting a glimpse of what is to come it's not just about saving israel from the hand of pharaoh but it seems god is interested in teaching them something to be remembered throughout all generations what do you think father tim this isn't just permission to name drop is it
1: Well, yes, this is, Moses is beginning to refute or reject everything that God says in their conversation. But the idea that we want to make something of this name, I am who I am. You know, a lot of people want to theologize about this name and talk about God and his eternal essence and whatnot and so on and so forth. But as a story, that's all nonsense. That would never be part of where the Exodus writer is taking us. The point is when he asks his name. I think God's response is, what is that to you? I'm not like the other gods who has a name, Baal or Ishtar or Isis or whatever you see. And you can put me somewhere. No, 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 no. I am who I am. It's not about my name and therefore having power control or reference me by my name. It is referencing by my actions. What am I going to do? And therefore it is those actions that reveal who he is, not just a name. Timothy, Holly, take your pick. Okay. Moses looking for a way out. And this is why the call of Moses is so beautiful because Moses is looking for a way out. He tried to rescue his people under his own terms as Prince of Egypt, as Lord Tsar in Hebrew, uh, judge, the Prince, the King, as if he was, he imagined himself once upon a time, but now he knows he's none of that. And return to Egypt means his life is at risk. How is he, the exiled one who has a contract out on his head, so to speak, can go back and challenge and deliver. And the point is he cannot, he is just the one sent. And the question is, will he go or will he not? That's the question. Will he accept the commission? And we know this is just the beginning and his unwillingness and making excuses but at the end, and Saint Paul reminds us that we glory in our weakness because in God's grace is made present more. Again, because it's not about us; it's about the power of God. And so the question is: Will we submit, and will we be sent? And the rest, honestly, is details. And don't we think that's what the Sermon on the Mount is, Holly? Don't worry about it. we shall eat, you'll we'll drink. You know, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field. You know, seek first the kingdom of God, and the rest is details. But no, we're Americans. We need the fine print. We need the contract before we're going to sign on. That is not the case here, certainly for those that God is calling. And again, it's not because Moses is special. It is because he somehow showed up at the right time. That's how it's said to us, oh, let's go check this out. So it downplays Moses' significance, it downplays him and ultimately it'll be about what God will do through Moses.
0: So who am I? You're right. I'm nothing. But there's work to be done. Pick up a shovel. There's a message to be carried, right?
1: There is work to be done. Yeah, the funny thing is, if we imagine we are called, then we are really under the thumb or the boot or the hand of God. I like in the gospel when the Pharisees claim to know and then Christ slams them. Okay, if you know, then you're in trouble because then you're liable to judgment. You have no excuse we got to be careful how we frame our own selves because we put ourselves in a predicament of lacking no excuse and then be accountable, which of course we are, because we chose the God of Israel and the God of Jesus of Nazareth and the God of the Sermon on the Mount and the Last Judgment. So, oh, And you can't go back once you choose, right?
0: Thank you, Father Tim. You know, the story is really rich. As you said, Moses gets a lot of airtime in the Bible. Maybe we could consider a sequel of sorts.
1: We can, absolutely. It's a long story.
0: Thank you, Father Timothy.